It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I am Robert M. Price, the Bible Geek. The word geek denotes an obsessed hobbyist, and I'm happy to accept that definition. I find the Bible absorbingly fascinating. I do not regard it as an authoritative or inspired revelation from God. I used to, but ironically, it was the avid study of the Bible that led me to give up my religious devotion to it. I had to decide between my desire to understand the Bible and the religious faith that created my interest in it to begin with. So now I love the Bible as the classicist loves the Iliad and the Odyssey. In my view, there is nothing more pious than trying to understand the text for its own sake. Whether you are a believer or a skeptic, I'm inviting you to join me as we try to make sense of a sometimes puzzling book. Okay, I got uh, three good bunches of questions today. Uh, First, I'd like to announce one thing. I pretty much decided to go ahead and write a new book called Uprising, Deconstructing the Resurrection. Uh, it's going to be based on the long-delayed uh, eight or possibly nine-session um, lecture course I want to give on the topic. And as I was taking notes for that, I kind of saw the potential for it to grow into a book. So I'm pretty much set on doing that. Okay, um, the other thing is... Uh, I know everybody is in a rough time now because of the uh, economic turndown, uh, and uh, I'm no exception to that rule. As you know, I uh, cultivate uh, listeners to join up on Patreon and uh, support me that way, um, because, uh, you know, there's, there's no way I'm getting out into the uh, secular workforce. I'm on disability as it is, and too old, etc. Uh, but if you can uh, sign on with any uh, amount of, of, um, of a contribution monthly, I would sure appreciate it. And um, if you can't, what the heck? Keep listening anyway. Keep sending in uh, questions. So there's no admission fee per se. All right. David Mechianis. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I dealt with uh, an interesting question from him recently. Here's another one. This is one of my favorites. Why do so many people describe the serpent from the Garden of Eden as the devil? It certainly says no such thing in Genesis. For obvious enough reasons, the concept wasn't there. 
Perhaps I'm too bold in using the following terms, but I'm somewhat disappointed and find it somewhat embarrassing to say that I've even heard Orthodox priests uh, use the uh, descriptor in the Eastern Orthodox uh, Church, and not any type of small o Orthodox. And I must say that I find that particularly surprising because the priests are so often greatly learned people. There must be something I don't understand. I'd like to hear you cover the intentions and trends of this phenomenon. Uh, naturally, I realize there have been those who found it expedient to instill fright in their flock, and I would like to hear what you know of the history of such revisionists as those. But I wonder far more why this point about the devil being in the garden, which seems to me to be clearly unattributed, is carried by those who are not Protestant and who are intentionally careful in their faith. What's the history or reasoning behind this, um, so far as you know, and then a kind of... Uh, substitute for an answer that, uh, that David has heard. He says, I heard it, I heard from the great monk, bishop, and theologian, Anthony of Suraz, also known as Anthony Bloom, who lived 1914 to 2003. Um, I hope, uh, he says, may I have the strength to put it across correctly. He explained his view that since the story of the creation and of the Garden of Eden are both pre-fall, it describes a world to which we can no longer relate. Therefore, the story of these events cannot be exactly related as, except as a kind of fiction, if I understand them, and even then somewhat poorly. At the beginning of the Bible, this is not our world as we know it, you see, so there aren't really words to tell it, certainly no words to tell it plainly. Uh, this strikes me as a true concept. There's that, and then there's a further uh, fact. The garden and the beings there did not have sin, did not know or live in sin. I ask you if uh, you would perhaps try approaching the story of the serpent's conversation with Eve in this light, Genesis 3, 1 through 6. If you take it as a fact that neither the serpent nor Eve were sinning in what they said or did, I mean, really hang on to that concept and the argument, then what do you make of the story? <laughs> Dave, I'll be happy to tell you. I've done this so many times, both in class and here, that uh, uh, I, I just have fun doing it again. Um, originally, I believe this story is a clear parallel to the myth of Prometheus. And uh, who was Prometheus? Well, everybody knows basically he's the one that brought fire and knowledge to mankind. But who was he exactly? Well, he was, a, if I remember right, a cousin of Zeus and therefore a god or an immortal himself. He had been part of the previous uh, regime of divine beings, the Titans. Uh, Kronos and uh, people like that were Titans, right? They were gods, but not among the Olympian pantheon, right? Zeus, the next generation, they were the Olympian gods. 
Well, generally, they, the two groups didn't get along very well. But uh, in the Prometheus story, we're told that uh, Prometheus was kind of an advisor to Zeus. He, he survived on into the, the next administration, you might say. And uh, there were a couple of uh, run-ins with uh, his cousin, because though Zeus created mankind, uh, Prometheus didn't think he was really giving him adequate attention. And so he adopted, the, so to speak, the, um, the human race as his uh, concern. Well, they were making up the rules of sacrifice in the very early days where humans first started worshipping the gods. And uh, they sacrificed animals. Well, now, you're not just going to you know, FedEx the whole beast up uh, to the top of Mount Olympus for the gods to butcher. No, uh, of course, what happened was uh, the uh, in an animal sacrifice, the priests slaughtered it, butchered it. And uh, some parts they kept uh, for themselves, which was the salary of the the, uh, the priests. The same thing in the Jerusalem temple. I'm sure that's the way it is all over with sacrificial rituals. Uh, but uh, they the rest of it they offered as a whole burnt offering to the gods. Uh, that is, you just consume the whole thing in fire, and the uh, as it says in Genesis, the savor of the smoke goes up to the nostrils of the gods and and uh, pleases them, and that's what nourishes them. Uh, so uh, they're trying to decide who gets what in the very beginning of this, and. Uh, Prometheus figured, well, the gods don't really need this. <clears throat> uh, they, they're immortal anyway. Uh, it's like giving tribute to the gods. Do you really need it? Well, no, but it's nice to have it. Uh, so what Prometheus did was he's, he took all the good meat uh, from a, sacri a sample sacrifice, put it in a huge uh, jar or amphora, I guess it is, and uh, but then put on uh, top of it uh, all the so-called ophal, that is just the, uh, the leftover uh, appendices and organs and fat and so forth. None too appetizing even for the palate of a god. Uh, so that's on top, right, the top layer. Then he took all the rest of the cast-off stuff and filled another jar with it and put a couple of steaks on top of that. And the point, of course, is to uh, deceive the person who's ex who is going to inspect both. Uh, and uh, it's so uh, he puts this buffet in front of Zeus and he takes one look at the fat and gristle and all that stuff and says, what the hell with this? Uh, give it to those uh, those peons down there, those plebeians that I made. Uh, they, this is good enough for them. Uh, and uh, now what's that other one? Hey, I like the, the savor on that steak. That's going to be mine. Well, he realizes too late, uh, and for some reason he can't undo the deal. I, I don't know. I guess it's just uh, once you make the big decision, you can't go back on it. I don't know why, but um, 
uh, like the laws of the Medes and the Persians, right, later in the Bible, where uh, even the uh, the emperor cannot undo a decree. The decree he has issued. I guess it's that sort of thing. But at any rate, once uh, Zeus makes up his mind uh, and Prometheus takes the jar, apparently, of just cast-off uh, garbage uh, tissue and so on, uh, down to Earth, well, they skim that crap off and uh, and they say, hey, not bad. Uh, let's fry up some steaks right now. Uh, well, or, or we could if we had, what's that stuff? Fire. Well, we'll get to that in a second, but Zeus does the same thing. Uh, he, uh, he has uh, the top layer of the good meat removed to cook, I guess, and he sees, what the hell is this? Uh, that Prometheus, that SOB tricked me. Uh, boy, if he pulls one more stunt, he's in big trouble. Well, he does, right? Because Prometheus has taken pity again on the human race because, you know, they, they have the meat, but they ain't got no way to cook it. No fire, no know-how really of any kind. So Prometheus knows that Zeus jealously wants to guard that stuff. That's his his prerogative. Uh, but Prometheus manages to sneak into the heavenly temple. There was one, because apparently the gods worshipped gods of their own. At any rate, um, he sneaks in there and uh, lights a reed with... Uh, with fire from the altar and then takes a piece of papyrus and makes a, a hollow cone to put around it so nobody can see the flame. And he sneaks on down to earth and said, hey, everybody gather around. I got something to show you. It's Boy Scouts 101. Uh, this is how you make fire. You won't have to shiver in the darkness anymore. And you can cook that meat. Well, Needless to say, this was a huge step forward in civilization. Well, Zeus uh, notices a light down there uh, on the earth. He says, hey, what, what is that? Darn it, that doesn't look like flames. And so he sends somebody to check it out. And he says, that no good SOB. He's outsmarted me again. Well, he's not going to get away with it this time. Uh, and so he sends some goons down there to grab Prometheus and nail him to the side of a rock, uh, a bol huge boulder. Now, if that weren't bad enough, uh, talk about food you don't want. Uh, Zeus causes either an eagle or a vulture. They're related birds. I guess it's hard to know which one the, re the word referred to. Uh, but he, let's say... Uh, an, eagle. He, he assigns this eagle to visit Prometheus every day to rip open his abdomen and eat his liver. Well, he's still alive, right? Uh, and then his tummy full, the, the eagle goes away, but uh, it's chow time again the next day, and in the meantime, Prometheus's liver has grown back. But he ain't going to keep it for long, right? Because every steak and day, uh, the uh, the eagle comes for, for another course. Uh, is this still happening today? Well, luckily, no, because Hercules came along and freed Prometheus. 
at some point. I don't know how long it was supposed to have taken. But what the heck does this have to do with Genesis? Well, it's almost exactly the same thing. Notice that uh, God has placed the man, he isn't called Adam yet, that's just the common word, Adam, a human being, placed him in the garden because he needed a caretaker uh, for his garden. And what, why does God need a garden? Well, it's an oasis. And uh, it says he walks uh, there and takes a stroll there in the cool of the evening, which certainly implies an anthropomorphic God, right? You're not talking about you know, Thomas Aquinas or Paul Tillich here uh, with God as a kind of philosophical abstraction. No, God is more like Zeus. And uh, so he's got a body and he walks in the garden and he eats food because there is a, 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 the garden is filled with fruit trees. And uh, Yahweh or Jehovah says to him, uh, uh, now you can feel free to eat fruit off of any of these trees except for two. Uh, I want you to steer clear of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, especially this second one, because the day you take a bite, you will drop dead. So I'm warning you now. Okay, great. Thanks for the heads up. And uh, he leaves. Well, uh, then he sees that uh, that uh, the, the man is alone, and he decides... You know, that, that's no good. Uh, I don't really have enough work to keep him busy. He's, he's all by himself. I think I'll make a companion that would, would be a good friend for him. And out of the dust of the ground, the same source from which he made the man, he makes one animal after another, thinking that, well, maybe this one will do the trick. But, of course, none of them do. I think, obviously, because no animals speak, right? Had he created Mr. Ed, you know, that, that might be different. But none of the animals could speak, so come on. Right? And I can see this going another way. Tarzan seemed to get along pretty well with Cheetah before Jane arrived. But anyhow, uh, so Jehovah decides, maybe I'll have better luck if I clone him, as we might say. If I make another one like him from a piece of him, that might do the trick. And, and indeed it does. He causes, he puts the anesthetic, uh, in, is that the, yeah, uh, to work and, uh, the man falls asleep and God performs surgery. He takes of his side. The Hebrew word could mean just a whole side of him or a rib. We don't know which is intended. Both make pretty good sense. The, the ancient rabbis thought it meant that uh, the original man was a hermaphrodite or an androgyne, if there's a difference. And he split him down the middle, uh, male on one side, female on the other. Uh, that was that may sound like some kind of weird Gnostic heresy, but that's what Orthodox rabbis thought way back there. So uh, in either case, now there is a, a, a male and a female, and uh, the man is so glad to see somebody like him. He says, this at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And uh, then the narrator says, well, you know, this is why a man leaves his uh, father and mother uh, and cleaves to his wife. 
uh, and the two become one flesh. And uh, so th this is a motif you can find in Zoroastrianism and in Plato also. Why is there a sex drive? Well, because the, uh, the, the male and female originally were one organism and they instinctively want to become that again by sexual union. That doesn't mean they want to have kids. That's a separate aspect of it. They want to restore the lost oneness. And, uh, but then what happens? Uh, the serpent finds the woman uh, wandering around in the garden and says, Hey, how you doing? Uh, says, did, uh, did Jehovah, no, he just says, does God, he doesn't actually use the, the divine name. Uh, has God told you you can eat of any of these fruit trees? And, uh, and the woman says, well, almost, but, but not all. We're to stay away from the, from this tree here, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because if we do eat it, it's fatal. It's poison to us. And, uh, he says, what? Look, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that fruit. Uh, if it, it won't kill you, I'll tell you what it will do. It will open your eyes and you will be like God or God's the same in Hebrew, knowing good and evil. Now, what does that mean? Morality, conscience, or just a figure of speech, meaning everything from A to Z. I, there's a lot of debate over that. But uh, then it says, uh, when the woman saw that the fruit was desirable, uh, uh, what was pleasant, was good to eat and desirable to make one wise. She took some and gave to her husband with her and he ate. Uh, and the eyes of both were opened. This is the narrator now. Uh, and uh, then once, then the next day, Jehovah himself shows up in the garden for his customary stroll but uh, the two humans are not there. And he, he says, hey, where is everybody? And they're over in the bushes. And uh, the man says, uh, <laughs> over here, why are you hiding? Well, I was embarrassed to come out because uh, I was naked. Oh, I see. Uh, wait a minute. Who told you you were naked? Uh, uh, the woman, the woman you gave me, she's the one that told me to eat the fruit and, and I got suckered into it. And then she says, hey, look, don't blame me. It was the serpent. He's the one that told me. Oh, yeah. And he says, well, I'm passing out the punishments. And he says to the man, uh, it used to be easy. You just had to pick the fruit off the trees, didn't you? But not anymore, my friend. Uh, now you're going to have back-breaking labor. The earth is going to be uh, uh, recalcitrant. It's, it's not going to produce food for the asking. You're going to have to do all this farming, and, and in the sweat of your face you will eat your food. Uh, and uh, then he says uh, to the woman, uh, because you have done this, uh, here's what's going to happen. Um, you will have pain in childbirth. And uh, you might think you can avoid that by uh, closing the bedroom door on your husband. 
but no, your desire is going to be for him, and uh, you're going to get pregnant, and the punishment is going to fit the crime, uh, labor pains and the like. Uh, and, and, and on top of that, I'm kicking you out of the Garden of Eden. And, and God, I guess I'll skip this, before God levels these punishments, he says to the other gods, look at this. Their eyes are open. They are like one of us. Uh, now, before they think to eat of the tree of eternal life, which is, of course, what gave the gods their immortality, they had to periodically eat it to renew that. Otherwise, what's the point? Uh, we don't want that to happen. So let's get them the heck out of here. Wait a minute. Childbearing? Where does that come in? Uh, well, because uh, primarily the knowledge in the tree of knowledge was carnal knowledge. Uh, he doesn't want them to know about procreation. The gods know it, and of course the gods have children. Again, they're thinking of very anthropomorphic deities. Uh, and uh, they, there are the sons of God mentioned various times in the Old Testament. So they, uh, and in fact, Yahweh or Jehovah was one of the sons of Elohim. Uh, and uh, this gets into all kinds of stuff. That's mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 32. There were 70 of these uh, sons of, of God. Well, okay, so what what they want to avoid is an ever-increasing race of rival gods. Because if the humans uh, have knowledge, uh, including carnal knowledge, uh, and, and have access to the tree of life, they're never going to die, and there's always going to be more and more and more of them. They got a bunch now. Uh, they, they don't want to be overruled and lost in a sea of divine beings, so let's get them the hell out of here, which they do. Uh, and so the, the, the Gnostics in the early Christian centuries, they understood this in a book, I believe it's the Testimony of Truth, one of the Nag Hammadi texts. Uh, they, they summarize the story and then the writer comments on this and says, uh, what kind of a God, uh, speaking word for word here, what kind of a God is this? Uh, is he not a malicious grudger? Well, that's about the size of it. You see, he's like Zeus and the serpent is like Prometheus. He takes pity on the poor dumb humans uh, and says, God, uh, Jehovah's pulling the wool over your eyes here. He's telling you it's fatal. You'll see in a second it's not, and indeed it isn't, right? Uh, and uh, and your eyes will be opened, and uh, their eyes are opened according to the narrator and according to Jehovah, and they have become like gods, just like the serpent told them. So there's no evil done here by the serpent or the man and the woman who were shortly thereafter named Adam and Eve. Uh, and uh, it's this was not even taken to be the origin of the fall or original sin in Judaism. 
they correctly saw that uh, that had to do with the sons of God mating with the daughters of men right before the flood. That's what led to the corruption of the human race. Not this. And so uh, it seems to me not only does it not say it's the devil, uh, but uh, he's not even a villain. He's like Prometheus, a tragic hero, because he is condemned, uh, and now he's being viewed as the prototype serpent. Now, God created one each, presumably, of all the creatures. Well, this was the serpent, and he was the, the wisest. And, uh, and he is condemned to no longer what? How did he get around? Well, it's possible they pictured him having legs, uh, because there are some species of snakes that still have vestigial legs pressed into the, the body. Uh, they lost the use of them in evolution from long before and now just uh, uh, go along on, on their bellies on the ground, right? Uh, well, we wouldn't like to have to do that, and the storyteller figured they must not like it either, so it must have been a punishment leveled by an angry god. But it's also, and here I think perhaps more likely, that they flew. Because uh, over in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees Adonai on the throne, and around him are the seraphim, the, the burning ones, each with six wings. Uh, what are they exactly? Well, seraphs were... Uh, actually common mythological entities in Egypt and Babylon and Assyria, and they were winged animals with human faces. Uh, and uh, in Assyria, you've no doubt seen photos of a huge sculpture of a bull with wings and a human face. That was one style of cherubim. Uh, there were winged serpents or lions with human faces in Egypt. That's what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant. They're cherubs. Uh, and, uh, and the, um, uh, the, probably the ones in Isaiah 6 are winged serpents. Now, how can that be since they must have hands, right? One of them grasped tongs to grab a, a burning coal from the altar, right? Well, in Egypt, the, the depictions of seraphs as flying serpents they can have legs or feet depending on what they're doing in the service of the gods. Uh, and so that's not really a surprise either. So uh, th this whole thing, this traditional reading of the Garden of Eden, I think goes way against the, the original meaning that uh, some of the original readers understood. Now, who would have written a story in which Jehovah, the God of Israel, is lying and trying to cheat his creatures out of wisdom and so forth? Well, you got to ask, who would have written the Prometheus story uh, that makes Zeus look pretty bad and Prometheus look pretty good, even though he's punished for what he did? Same thing here. We happen to know that there was uh, at least one reform effort in ancient Israel when they tried to get rid of various of the gods they had worshipped alongside Yahweh. And uh, and uh, it's, it describes one of them in uh, somewhere in First Kings, I think it is, uh, where it says that they got rid of the brazen or bronze serpent named Nehushtan, to whom incense 
had been sacrificed in his own little chapel in the Jerusalem temple, and they put it out to the curb for the garbage men to pick up. Now, wait a second, what was that? Well, that implies it was a god, if you're offering incense to it. And uh, which god? Well, the name seems to be synonymous with that of Leviathan, one of the chaos dragons, known to uh, the, uh, the Canaanites as Lotan, another version of the same name. It's like a personification of the Litani River, the border between Syria and Lebanon even today. It had various tributaries, and so they picture that as the seven heads of the dragon. Just like the Hydra next door in Greece, it had nine heads, uh, no doubt because of another river. It embodied and the word Hydra means water, in case you hadn't noticed. Uh, in Babylon, it was, uh, it was uh, Tiamat and various other ones. In India, it was Vritra, and uh, it was all the same myth pattern all over the place. And uh, so this this the snake is sort of a token remnant of this earlier god, but the Eden story is later than that, uh, apparently. And the chapter one creation story, which has nothing really to do with this one, uh, that has the same tendency. Instead of actually, it does have sea monsters created, but it's taken the chaos dragons and made them into abstractions. Tohu and Bohu, the earth was without form and void. Well, Tohu was the singular for uh, Tiamat, a plural. Bohu was the singular for Behemoth. Uh, another uh, plural form. Uh, and uh, so you can see what's going on here. They're rapidly, well, I should say gradually demythologizing the creation accounts. Uh, but uh, I'll get, I'll hold off on this for a second till we get to the next part of your question. But I, I think the Gnostics were the last ones who ever, who understood this. Uh, what I have outlined, though I am certainly not the only one to uh, treat it that way, but people just cannot seem to take the blinders of indoctrinated belief off when they read the Bible. Uh, but that's what I believe I have done and what I urge others to do. I want, if I have to choose between an inherited theology and correctly understanding the text, I'm picking the latter. Okay, um, is it, is this one? Oh, I'm sorry, it's not David who talks about the difference between the two accounts. I'll get on to, to that. That's, uh, that's Paul Valenti. I'll get to him in a minute. Sorry about that. Uh, Luther Hermanson, always keeping me in stock with great questions. His first one, he says, at different times in history, terms translated to us as philosophy and religion are used for one another in ways that we would not understand them now. For example, uh, in the first century of the Common Era, we have religio licita, uh, legal religions, basically, in the Roman Empire, 
so the word it, religion is in use that far back. But at the same time, we have four philosophies, philosophia, uh, of Judaism in Josephus. So the word philosophy is nothing new. Of course, it goes way back to Socrates and before. Um, the, those that Josephus discusses, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, the latter example wouldn't really be thought of as philosophies anymore, but rather as sects of religion. My question is, do you know much about how the two terms came into use and how their meanings have shifted through the past couple of thousand years? When was religion a philosophy or a philosophy of religion, a religion? And when or how did their meanings evolve or even flip-flop? I assume we're into the Middle Ages, maybe later, even the early Enlightenment, uh, before the, it was then before the words were as distinct as they are now with their current meanings, but I really don't know. Any information is very welcome. Uh, actually, Luther, I think, uh, you can go way, way back. Uh, I believe the reason Josephus refers to, uh, the four religious sects w was that he was trying to make Judaism look more cultured to the Romans and the assimilating uh, Hellenistic Jews by making it more like not only f philosophy, but particular philosophies. For instance, he compares the Pharisees to the Stoics. He says they believe in predestination in everything except matters of choice, moral choice. Uh, he, he says they believe in... Re that uh, they believe that the dead will, the righteous dead will come to life in new bodies. And he's sort of craftily leaving it open as to whether you want to take that to mean reincarnation or resurrection of the dead. Right? That's intentionally ambiguous. Uh, then with the Sadducees, they're compared to the Epicureans. And indeed, in the first centuries, in the Talmud and so on, they're, the Sadducees are often just called the Epicureans because they believe that that, that gods existed, but uh, they uh, thought that uh, there was no reason to worry about uh, hell, uh, there was no afterlife, uh, and there were, therefore death was nothing to be afraid of. Just like uh, you weren't hanging around uh, somewhere waiting to be born. Boy, when's this going to start? I'm getting impatient here. That's ridiculous. And even more so is the idea that once you're dead, you're going to be hanging around the uh, graveyard thinking, boy, what a drag this is. If only I got to squeeze out a couple of more years, I got to take a few items off my bucket list. No, you're not going to be hanging around, bemoaning, being dead. You're just going to be dead, for Pete's sake. Uh, it's oblivion. It's not suffering. Don't let them scare you. Uh, and enjoy the life you have. Uh, and and by that, uh, old Epicurus did not mean whoop it up. He says, you'll be sorry in the morning. You know, you, you live a life of moderation and uh, deferred uh, gratification, and, and you'll have plenty of enjoyment in life. Uh, and uh, some intense, some tranquil, both are good. Uh, now, so the Sadducees, who the New Testament tells us didn't believe in uh, resurrection or 
afterlife or angels. Yeah, that's, that's them, all right. Uh, and, uh, the Essenes, uh, were compared to Pythagoreans and, in fact, were, were much like them. Uh, so he's, it's sort of public relations with Josephus. And, uh, the, uh, and I think he would have agreed as a Jew with, uh, Romans and Greeks who had always seen religion on the one hand as a matter of, uh, civic duty, honoring and, and give, giving offerings to the gods, uh, and uh, obeying the laws that Apollo had given, uh, and so forth. Uh, and uh, and the, the sacrifices, again, a big thing. And with, with uh, Greeks who wanted to go deeper and were initiated into mystery religions, uh, they believed that uh, they could gain immortality or at least a blessed life by uh, undergoing initiation and, and so forth. But I don't think, uh, I don't know that there was a time when the two were synonymous because philosophical schools generally didn't uh, bother with sacrifices, though, though you could be a philosopher and religious now, like Plato was. Uh, Socrates, you know, the big philosopher, well, he, he amer- uh, apparently regarded himself as a good citizen. And, uh, and one of his last words when he drank the hemlock was, uh, I owe a rooster to Asclepius. Could you pay my debt to him? Uh, Asclepius was a healing god and, and apparently Socrates had offered him, or had uh, like, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Uh, he had said, look, I don't have a rooster on me now, but I'll be right back and uh, pay for it if, if you could uh, get uh, Sclepius to intervene for me. So I think that that distinction goes way back there. Plus, philosophy was a matter of simply reasoning without... Uh, um, claiming any sort of mysterious revelation, though you might also have that, but it uh, it was much like in uh, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas' time, which is way after this, right, with the 10th or 11th or 13th century, I guess I'm getting mixed up with a couple of others, uh, where uh, he was certainly a devout Eucharist-taking uh, penance observing a Roman Catholic, but he said that uh, you, revelation is one thing and it requires faith to apprehend, but there's plenty of stuff uh, that uh, your mind can fathom. Uh, Aristotle was no Christian, but he had a great brain and he figured out definitively what the good life is. We ought to imitate him. Uh, so there's, uh, you could be, you could have both. Uh, but they, they've long been considered very diff- different. Um, another one, uh, from, from Luther he says, I know you don't really think there was a historical Paul in the way he's commonly understood, but for this question's purpose, let's pretend there was such a figure. The Hellenistic, urban, educated Jewish guy who in the 50s wrote the authentic quote-unquote letters and had a pretty big influence on the emerging sect eventually known as Christianity. Um, precise details don't really matter for our purposes. 
I truly don't know if this is a reasonable question, but it doesn't, but doesn't it seem strange that such a Paul didn't seem to write anything summing up his understanding of Christ slash religion for universal audiences, but rather only incidental letters written to specific communities to answer specific questions? Wouldn't the character we glean from those letters see that he could, and for his evangelical ambitions, probably should write the Book of Christianity to outline uh, this, this whole system so that it would be useful to all communities to answer many of these questions as churches had, uh, not to mention to give them the bedrock teaching they need to be good Christians? Even if one allows that initially he thought the end was coming any day now, after ten years or so writing letters that presumably would address the same topics and questions, at some point doesn't a reasonable apostle recognize that maybe there's an easier way, not to mention one that would preserve his literary-slash-philosophical-slash-religious legacy in the way that the arrogant, ambitious Paul—okay, that's definitely my bias— as would seek. I know some may say they were circular letters intended to be shared, but even so, their contents imply specificity, not universality. There's no organized systematic theology presented as a book for consumption. Uh, Marcion wrote the antitheses, but his hero Paul wrote letters saying women ought to be sure to put on their bonnets in church. I'm being silly, but I hope you can catch my point. I never thought about it before, but doesn't it seem like someone like Paul, being a writer, would have written a book specifically about his understanding of religion? Has there been remotely believable speculation that he may have done so, but that it was lost to history? Or discussion of the absence of such a thing? It just struck me today as bizarre, like some brilliant musician recording his individual songs and giving them to his friends, asking them for donations, but never thinking, hey, I could record a whole album of these and sell it to everyone. Well, you kind of uh, uh, read my mind there. The, the circular letters, it's... Like in a, in a, I guess the closest to what you're saying would be the the epistle to the Romans, because there the occasion is, as he says, you know, I'm planning an evangelistic tour to Spain, and I got to pass through Rome first, and I'm kind of hoping you might uh, make some donations so I can bring provisions with me and afford the the boat fare and all that stuff. Uh, and But I know I, my name has brought some controversy there, so I, I want to write this to you in advance so you will be clear on what I actually teach and what I don't, because there are people that say I, I say things that I don't say. Uh, and uh, he says, and their condemnation is just, etc. So let's get this straight. And he does seem to start out uh, with uh, the righteousness that comes from God. And he gets around to a lot of points. That's why Romans is the favorite letter of Protestants. And uh, it, it is kind of a manifesto. And an awful lot of it has to do with uh, works of the law uh, versus uh, faith. 
because it's the big issue in a city where there are both Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian assemblies. He's trying to get them to, to coexist in peace and cooperation. And he's trying to show uh, how both deserve respect. The, the Gentile Christians must not imagine that Jews are now second class, not even non-Christian Jews. He says, look, God has a plan. Eventually, they'll join the fold. And, and it's part of his plan that they're on the sidelines now because that gives people like me the opportunity to preach to Gentiles, which we couldn't do if we were exclusively working among our fellow Jews. So he's got it all worked out and he has not cast off his people. Don't, don't think he has. Don't start getting uppity. Uh, but fellow Jews, uh, let's be clear that, uh, with the advent of Christ, the law is not necessary even for the pagans as long as they come to Christ. If they believe, uh, in his death and resurrection and so forth, uh, that uh, and that it's not works of the law uh, that are salvific. Uh, everybody can get along fine because uh, God is tolerant of both of you groups. Don't uh, don't judge your uh, brother when God's not judging him. Uh, and so I'm sure it could have been more systematic, but certain things. But but it's also occasional. But the occasion there was, let's get a good, clear statement of what Paul's preaching is, especially to Jews as opposed to Gentiles, or both of them in turn. Uh, as to circular letters, Ephesians is usually taken to be a circular letter, that because some of the earliest copies don't even have a recipient name. Uh, in some, it just doesn't say to the church which, at, which is at Ephesus. Uh, it's just to the church of God or to the saints of God or whatever. And uh, this covers a lot of ground also, some of the same ground. Now, there's Ephesians is one of the ones where there really is uh, difficulty in believing that Paul wrote it. But whoever did write it did try to make a kind of a system of it. Because if you look as carefully as uh, E.J. Goodspeed did decades ago, you'll find that every sentence in Ephesians closely matches one elsewhere in the so-called Pauline epistles or the Greek Septuagint. I mean, it's it's ama amazing. Goodspeed sets it out in what, like one of those gospel parallels things with the columns across the page. It is amazing. So somebody there has decided to cobble one together. So that kind of comes in for that. Um, uh, somebody fiddled with First Corinthians to make it more of a... Uh, letter of general circulation, uh, when you have little phrases added, like, to the church at Corinth and in all other places, uh, and about uh, chapter 14 about women wearing veils, we have no such uh, custom otherwise, nor do any of the churches of God. And so there's some signs that that one was uh, slightly adjusted at least. 
so I, he did kind of come close to that if we're talking about an actual author of all those letters. Good question as always, Luther. And Paul Valenti, a couple of goodies. He says, I got into an argument with my co-worker today. He's dead now, and I'm sorry, just kidding. Uh, he says that the second chapter in Genesis is explaining the first chapter. I said it's two creation stories, and they contradict each other. For example, in Genesis 1, the animals are created, and then man. But in the second story, man is created, and then all the animals. Uh... Yeah, uh, there's a, a big open question for me here because for a long time I followed Wellhaus and others in saying what you just did very well in short compass there because you can't really uh, get around that difference. And there's another one too because it, it says that men and women were created together and a bunch of them at the same time. Um, but uh, then uh, in... Uh, uh, in Genesis 2, God creates the Adam, or the Ish, the male, and then the Isha, the female. Uh, and that's, I don't know how you get around that. The ancient rabbis did by positing that Lilith, the night hag responsible for sudden infant death syndrome, as we call it, uh, that she was uh, Adam's first wife, created along with him in chapter 1, but that she was a, a militant feminist and refused to, to l let herself be ordered around and, and left for Adam as if uh, uh, Alice had finally had enough of Ralph Cramden and left. Uh, and, uh, and, and so she then shacked up with Satan uh, and, uh, but God decided, well, let me make more of a Stepford wife. Uh, for uh, for Adam, who will uh, obey him and, and so on, get his slippers and all that. But is that really likely? I mean, if that were true, that would solve one of the problems, but you're rewriting the story completely to do that. So I still kind of stick with that, but I have to admit that in uh, Russell Gmirkin's recent book, um, Plato's Timaeus and the... Uh, Genesis creation story or something like that. Uh, he shows how actually, if you read chapters 1, 2, and 3, and even throw in 4 of Genesis, at all as one uh, in linked narrative, it parallels Plato's creation account in astonishing ways. That Why do we have Elohim in chapter 1? but Yahweh, or Jehovah, in chapter 2, uh, who creates the humans. Well, because in Plato's Timaeus, he has uh, the, the ultimate demiurge, the creator of the universe, who is more of an abstract figure, who then creates the Olympian gods. Uh, and they are like mortals, but he just gives them immortality. And, uh, and leaves them in charge of the earth where they live. These would be the sons of God, actually all the way in Genesis chapter 6, right? And when it says there that the, uh, uh, the, uh, sons of God mated with mortal women, 
it doesn't mean these depraved demons uh, fell out of the sky and started screwing the uh, the mortal women. No, Gamergan says with great plausibility that this refers to the Timaeus, where the Olympian gods lived on Earth and each created uh, the uh, the race that populated his uh, or her uh, fiefdom, his or her country. Athena created the Athenians and uh, and so forth. Uh, Poseidon created the Atlanteans and so on. And each married one of the women he had created, uh, king and queen. Their offspring were the sons of God. Now, why did this end up in corruption? Well, it wasn't because the... Uh, the sons of God had injected some germ of evil into the innocent human women. It's because they went on, they were demigoddesses, right? Half God, half human. And as they then brought forth new generations, each generation was like only a quarter divine, only an eighth divine, only a sixteenth divine. And eventually the divine virtue ran out. And now the animalistic nature inherent to humans began to manifest itself. And this is why the flood came, which was the sinking of Atlantis. The Athenian Empire got too big for its britches and started uh, uh, conquering neighboring uh, countries. And, uh, uh, let's see, the gods were disgusted by this and decided to retreat to Mount Olympus. And... Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, I think it was the, I'm sorry, Atlantis tried to create, to, to conquer everybody else. So, yeah. And, uh, and Athens beat them back. They said nothing doing. And, uh, that was since, if I remember this right, since Atlantis had started the whole thing, they were the ones that uh, Jehovah decided just to nuke and put an end to it. But he killed everybody else off, too. There was too much damage done. Uh, and then he started over. And that's where you get the story of uh, da- Balkus and... F- no, not Balkus and Philemon. Uh, who, who were the flood survivors? Oh, yeah, I guarantee I'll remember this in just Deucalion and Pera, that's it. Yeah, uh, and uh, they were told by the gods to to uh, survive the flood locked in a big box, otherwise known as an ark. Uh, and so the human population was renewed with them. Uh, and and so Gamirkin shows that maybe... Uh, the first and second chapters are just chapters of the same original thing. I don't know how he deals with the problem of the, the human species, a bunch of men and women created at once versus the Genesis 2 account, or the order of creation of humans and animals. I'll, I'll ask him. I, I should have done that before now. Uh, okay, uh, then there's uh, another one from Paul. Uh, he he uh, sent me these questions. He, he messaged me on uh, Facebook, which you can do too, or as most do, you can send them to me at uh, criticus uh, at aol.com. 
Okay, he says, also my co-worker says something about catechism, which explains who changed the Sabbath to Sunday. He told me to Google it, but I don't know what he's talking about. Before that, he showed me some articles on the Internet and mentioned Eusebius, and I forget who the other articles mentioned as being those who changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Oh, okay, uh, this is uh, this was the, the decision of the Emperor Constantine, who was the patron of Eusebius, the historian. Uh, the idea was that, uh, well, like many Jews, uh, well, I'm sorry, many Christians for uh, even on into Chrysostom's time in the 5th century uh, were going to synagogue on Saturday because it was the Sabbath and Sunday they were going to church because Sunday was the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection. So they went bo to both. Uh, Chrysostom didn't like that. He said, come on, you're either a Jew or a Christian. Take your pick. And uh, who, who uh, that's a little narrow to me. I kind of like both. Uh, but um, uh, the thing was, Jews could work, uh, could, could uh, not work on the Sabbath, and the Roman Empire always accepted that. Uh, but what about the, the Lord's Day? Uh, Christians didn't have that off. Uh, and so some of them just couldn't get to church because of their work hours. Well, Constantine was a Christian or became one. There's reason to debate that. Uh, but at least he wound up a Christian. And he said, it doesn't seem fair that, that, uh, Christians should be, uh, pr prohibited from attending worship, uh, just because they're, they got a work day. So from now on, you don't have a work day. Uh, so it, the Sabbath, uh, the biblical Sabbath stayed the same, but you're talking about a time when Christians were no longer keeping the Jewish Torah in every respect. Uh, even though it's one of the Ten Commandments, they figured, well, close enough, I guess. Uh, but uh, they didn't feel obliged to keep all the technicalities of the Torah. Uh, but they did want to go to church, and so they presumably stopped going to synagogue as well and just went to the Sabbath, and now they could go. Uh, they didn't have to miss it because if they were slaves, for instance, or employees, they'd get some punishment or fired. Uh, so Constantine made it a day of rest. Uh, just like in Islam, by the way, Friday, the day of uh, prayer in the mosque, was not a Sabbath originally. You could go to work afterward, but somewhere along the line, they changed that into a Sabbath, too. No doubt, I, I'm not sure of this, but I, I assume um, to make it easier for uh, for all devout Muslims to go to public prayer on, on the day of prayer. And finally, one more from Paul. Uh, Jesus tells the Jews in the Gospel of John that their father is the devil, or so somebody on the internet, uh, so somebody on the internet was saying he means Yahweh is Satan. If I'm understanding them correctly, it has been said that Jesus' father was not the Old Testament God. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, like Bultmann pointed out that, uh, in that passage, the Greek really should be translated, you are of the father of the devil. 
rather than you are of or belong to your father, the devil. Uh, and uh, if he's right, that casts a different light on the matter. And it's still kind of Gnostic uh, because the... Uh, the uh, because uh, the father of the devil would still have been Yahweh. Uh, and uh, so it's like the... Uh, that would imply you Jews are cousins of the devil, you might say, or brothers and sisters. And uh, e even there, like, that's less an anti-Semitic statement, as blood-curdling as it is, and more of an anti-Orthodox Christian view, saying you guys worship a God that is not worthy of it, unlike the loving Heavenly Father revealed by Jesus. But yeah, you're right, it does have to do with Marcionism. And that uh, the uh, that Jehovah or Yahweh is not the father of Jesus, as when Jesus says in Matthew and Luke, uh, "No one knows the Father except the him to whom the Son reveals him." What do you mean? Nobody knows the, the Father. Uh, what about Moses and and all these guys? Uh, what about Adam? Well. According to the Marcionites, that wasn't the father of Jesus. Or uh, the Gospel of John elsewhere, no one has seen God except the only begotten Son. What? It says that Moses and Aaron, Nathan and Abiram, and so forth, saw the living God, saw the God of Israel. Well, that wasn't the father of Jesus Christ. Uh, so this, this would indeed... Uh, uh, it could very easily be taken in a Marcionite direction. There's a great book by uh, um, uh, M. David Litwa, L-I-T-W-A, called The Evil Creator, that gets into this whole thing. It's, it's very fascinating. You ought to look it up. It's a fairly new book, too. The Evil Creator by M. David Litwa, L-I-T-W-A. Okay, um, I guess that's it for today's exciting episode of the Bible Geek. Uh, find out what else there is to be known about the Bible on the next exciting episode. And again, please do consider uh, fattening my uh, moth-inhabited wallet on Patreon if you can. So, see you next time. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.